As I was preparing for our sermon this week, I know some of you think I just go to sermons.com uh, every Saturday evening. Uh, as I was preparing for my sermon this week, it occurs to me that as we, <clears throat> as we communicate about the Bible, about Scripture to other people who maybe are not so familiar with Scripture, we have choices in terms of the kind of story that we tell. Um, we have choices about the kind of story we tell others about our own faith and our own relationship with God. We have choices about how we explain who God is and what kinds of characteristics and things we want people to know about God. And as we have been going through the study of Joseph, I think uh, many of you have come to me uh, throughout this series. We're in our seventh week here. And have expressed to me how we have talked about things you have never considered from the life of Joseph. And my answer to most of you is always the same. You know, I, I, I agree with you. And the thing that I think is so weird is that the story of Joseph hasn't changed in the scripture. It's been the same all along. It's the same words it's the same story. It's the same things that we've read over and over and over again. And yet it occurs to me that as we are now looking at this story and maybe asking some questions we haven't asked before, that maybe we've told or remembered a story about Joseph that was not completely accurate to what actually happened and to who he is and what his family was going through. And you know, it's pretty obvious in the story of Jacob, all of the warts and pimples and things that were there. But I don't know about you, I don't remember Joseph having that many warts and pimples. And yet, the dude needs some acne medicine. For sure, the warts and pimples are everywhere. So we have to launch right in today because we are covering quite a bit of ground. Um, but let's start with a State of the Union recap and look at the three groups of major players who are involved in this part of our story. First, there is Joseph himself, our hero, the one that we have been following through this story. He started out his life as the chosen and favored son. God put a dream on his heart that those around him would bow down to him. His brothers did not particularly care for that dream. So they sold him into slavery, and through the most twisted of roads, Joseph went from slave to prisoner to dream interpreter to second in command in all of Egypt. And we know, because the story tells us this over and over again, that all this happened in the life of Joseph because God was with him. At the point we are at now in the story, Joseph kind of has all the power in the world. He used that power to save the known world by storing up food for a time of great famine. And all of Egypt and the surrounding areas had to go to Egypt for food. And this included those who lived in Canaan, i.e. Joseph's family, which again sold him into slavery and on and on and on. So his brothers showed up for food and Joseph had all of the feels about his brothers being there. 
he was angry, he was sad, he felt some joy, all these different things. But it was really unclear last week as we started to look at what he was doing, what his end game was. He certainly had not gotten over everything that had happened to him, and rightly so. He had not revealed himself to his brothers. Instead, he chose to put them in a terrifying situation, accusing them over and over again of being, remember, spies. You are spies. Over and over and over again. Though we may not want to admit it, because we probably haven't considered this that often about Joseph, he is not acting like someone whose life is driven by a godly purpose. Did you notice that? While we might justify his behavior based on the treatment he's received, which I think is mostly what I've done with him at this part of the story, well, of course he's going to do this. Look at what his brothers did. He is not acting like a gracious servant of God, and no matter how we turn these chapters, he is not perhaps, we have made him out to be in our minds. He's not acting like a servant of God. He is acting like the second in command of Egypt who has a serious grudge. And the only thing that is clear at this point is that he wants to see his brother Benjamin. That's all we really got from the previous chapter, chapter 42. Jacob was the head of his family. He lived a very up-and-down life. He had a relationship with God and was the bearer of God's promises. He was a wealthy man with a big family, powerful in his region. But we discovered last week that he is also an incredibly broken person. He did his part. He is not faultless in this. He did his part in creating a family that was torn by jealousy. And we know the reasons he was tricked into marrying his first wife, Leah, but he loved Leah's sister, Rachel. And these dynamics create tension within his family that his, his children carried on through their entire lives. It's a classic scenario. You'll see next week when Reuben goes to his therapist. He had 13 sons, but only two of them were sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. They were his favorite sons. And guess who knew it? Everybody. Everybody knew it. And he had already lost Rachel when he was told that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Something inside him broke that could not be fixed. He mourned his son and became fiercely protective of Benjamin, so much so that he was willing to let one of his other sons stay in prison in Egypt rather than, sin, rather than risk something to Benjamin's life. And he wears his grief for everyone to see. And then you have the brothers, which there is no more sad of a group of people, I think, in the Bible as the brothers during this time. Their existence is almost pathetic the life that they are living. In some ways, they are instigators, dishonest, jealous, and bitter. But lest we forget, they had some reason to be, considering their little brother was talking about how they would all bow down to them. 
In other ways, they have paid over and over and over and over again for what they have done to Joseph and their father. Maybe they thought that getting rid of Joseph would change the situation in their family and would bring some sort of, like, you know, relational equity to everything. But boy, were they wrong about that. Instead, that decision to get rid of Joseph has dramatically changed the trajectory of their lives because Joseph was not really gone. His ghost haunted every moment of their lives. So much so that when they're in Egypt and things don't go the way they should, they immediately say, this happened to us because of what we did to our brother. There was no dream from God to guide them. They built their own families and progressed through life as they should, but they now had to protect their grief-stricken father who was in the position he was in because they put him there. And every day when they saw their father mourn, they were reminded of what they had done. How much of their time was spent taking care of Benjamin and making sure nothing happened to him so that their father would not have to go through this again. Now in the famine, these brothers are utterly without power. They are stuck between a father broken by their own doing and the most powerful man in the world who seems to think that they are spies. We fail to appreciate, guys, the absurdity of that claim. That this one family, you know, they keep saying we are the brothers of one man. Do you know why they keep saying that? We are not a nation coming against you. We're just a family that needs food. And what is Joseph's response? No, you are spies. You have come here to look for weaknesses in Egypt. And the brothers can't argue back against him even though they claim that it's not true. We're just a family. How are we going to take on Egypt? What are we going to do? We have some fierce goats. And we are going to unleash these goats on you. So when we last left the story, the brothers had left Simeon in Egypt, gone home, and given Jacob the news that they had to take Benjamin back with them. But Jacob refused, basically saying Simeon is dead. I will now have to mourn him too. And he blamed the brothers for all that had gone wrong. But there was one major issue. They are still in famine. And they had a limited amount of food. Families, am I right? Sometimes I, in reading this story, I wonder what the story is kind of even about. Have you find yourself, found yourself wondering that a little bit? Like, where is this going? We know where the narrative is going. But as we're following the people and the things that they're going through, I sometimes wonder, what am I seeing here? What is this story relaying to me? We see how God raised Joseph up. We see how he saved the world from famine, a famine that God brought, by the way. God said in the interpretation to the dreams of Pharaoh, I am doing these things. We see Egypt benefit over and over again because of God's presence with Joseph. But what do we see about God and these people that are his? 
and their relationship with him. In short, it's a complicated story, way more complicated than we have given it credit for being. You know, we jump from one spot to the other. In our memory, we would probably skip over most of this. We would probably say, you know, they just didn't get along, and Joseph messed with them a little bit, and then move on. But there's much more happening here. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 43. Now, we are going to have a lot of Scripture here this morning. We're going to go through 43 and 44. We're not going to read everything, um, but try to keep up. Ready? All right. Verses 1 through 14. Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Okay, we need to do something collectively in this moment. Everybody roll your eyes. Ready? One, two, three. He's he's being ridiculous. Can we just acknowledge that really quick? That he's being ridiculous? Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered the questions. How were we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. As it is, we, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once, and may God Almighty Grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back to you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Okay, so Jacob seems to have forgotten all about the situation they were in. The famine was still raging on. They had brought a small amount of grain back, and as happens, when you eat a small amount of grain, it goes away. It runs out. And Joseph says, or Jacob says, why don't you go back and get some more grain? And Judah's like, Dad, there's a problem. There was only one place they could go to get grain because that's how the scenario is set up. And the only place they could go is Egypt. 
And the only way they could go back to Egypt was to take Benjamin back to Egypt with them. And Jacob had already said he doesn't want this to happen. So ultimately, something has to give. And Judah recognizes something that Jacob was not willing to see. This is all life and death. You're concerned about losing Benjamin, but the entire scenario is life and death. He goes, maybe you lose him. He doesn't go, we don't get food and we all starve. So, does Jacob really have a choice in the matter as to what to do? No. Do the brothers have a choice as what they can do? No. There is only one course ahead of him. So, the brothers reminded Jacob of the situation. We can take Benjamin back, prove that we are not spies, get Simeon, buy more grain, and return home, or we can all die. Which would you prefer, dear father? Jacob, out of his bitterness and fear, wondered why they had told the second most powerful man in the world that they had another brother when they were being questioned about spies. As if this were the biggest issue in all that was happening. If you had just kept your mouth shut, we wouldn't be in this situation. Well, dad... He's second in command in Egypt. What were we supposed to say? And how were we supposed to know he was going to want to see our brother? Does that make any sense to you? No. So he really doesn't get it. He just, Jacob is just talking his, his mindset. So, Jacob, so Judah, Judah is spelling it out for him, and he says something interesting. He says, need to slow down a little bit. My words are starting to move. He says, if this goes south, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Now, why is that somewhat of an ironic statement on the part of Judah? While Judah was the one who really pressed to have Joseph removed from the family, he had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery so they could at least profit off of the situation. So in many ways, Judah's life, he has already been carrying the blame for Joseph on his heart. He knows what he did in this moment. And now he is committing that if anything happens to Benjamin, he will carry that weight as well. Let me ask you this question. Does that weight change Judah's life at all? Not really. Other than his dad gets to say directly to him, you lost Benjamin, if that happens. But he's already got that on his back. So Jacob relented and told them to take twice as much in payment with them. Take twice as much and, and let's, let's bring a little Canaan swag with us too. Let's get some honey and you know, some other stuff and maybe this will butter him up. But his last line there is a little bit haunting and we can't ignore it. He says... If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. If I lose Benjamin, then I lose him. Those are not the words of someone who has much hope. And they are also not the words of someone who is relying on God to be faithful and good. Instead, they are the words of someone who has resigned to the fact that his life has no more meaning or purpose or direction it's pretty sad 
All these things that he's done, all of these actions he's taken, have been to protect himself from more loss. And in this moment, he says, loss is coming, and I just have to deal with it. It is also interesting to know that God is not evoked through most of this, except that he might be merciful and let them be successful. It is not a statement of faith in God. It's more like, fingers crossed, let's hope we make it. Joseph's brothers did what they were told and took double the amount of silver along with Benjamin back to see Joseph and buy more food. When Joseph saw that they had Benjamin with him, he ordered them to be taken to his house. The brothers were terrified that they were going to Joseph's house. They thought they were in trouble because of the whole silver thing. He thinks we've stolen from him. Now we're being taken to his house, and they were worried and fearful about what was going to happen. So they go to the house. The steward, Joseph's steward, takes him there, and they they say to him, look, we paid for the food before, and when we got back, the silver was in the top of our bags. We didn't do that. We paid, and the steward, (laughs) who is an interesting character throughout these two chapters, by the way, the steward says, hey, don't worry about it. I know the silver was there. I received it, but God has given it back to you. And the brothers are like, "Ah, okay. (laughs) And they go into Joseph's house, and they wash up, and they wait for Joseph to come home. Because Joseph wasn't going to meet them until he got off work and gets home at the end of the day. Now, let's just try to objectively for a moment look at this. Is this weird? Yeah. Now, what must the brothers be thinking at this point? They have just been invited. They were accused of, uh, of being spies. It looked like they stole from them, and now they're going to the dude's house, a place they have no business being, ever. What are they thinking? I, I don't know. Like I can, If we try to put ourselves into their mindset, It has to be one of the most anxiety-ridden days of their lives. And they've had some pretty anxiety-ridden days already. Let's pick it up in verses 26 through 34. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed, bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, (laughs) which just makes me laugh. That's why I'm laughing. And then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. They served him by himself, 
the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Okay, weird just got weirder. In how many ways? All of them. In all of the ways. Now again, Joseph's brothers find themselves bowing before him. Not once, but twice. He asked about his father, and then he saw Benjamin. And he confirmed that Benjamin was his brother, his brother from his mother Rachel, his only full brother, the only one who didn't participate in all of these things against him. And Joseph was so overcome, he had to go find a place to weep. Not to cry, but to weep. He wept so hard that he had to wash afterwards so think about it this way joseph was ugly crying like a lot a lot of ugly crying what is his state of mind then how do you think he's feeling well certainly overwhelmed certainly emotional it says when he comes back he has to control himself to say serve the food Do you, we're speculating here, of course. Do you think that Joseph really knows what he wants? Does, does he know how to move forward with this? Can he even wrap his mind around all of the things he's feeling in this moment? It's a lot. It's a lot. It, it, and it's clearly kind of too much for him to bear. And maybe he does know what he wants, but does he know how to get there? We don't really have an indication that he does. What we do know is that he was extremely emotional and in some ways driven by these emotions. And so there is now this sort of stratification that happens within the dining room, right? So there's Joseph who's served first by himself. There's the Egyptians that are served who cannot sit with uh, Joseph because they're not high enough in stature, but they also won't sit with the brothers because the brothers are Hebrews and that is detestable to the Egyptians. But the brothers are arranged. This is pretty funny, by the way. The brothers are arranged in birth order, meaning that the youngest, Benjamin, is the closest to Joseph. How close was he? Well, it might have been from me to Jason, realistically with all these people in the room. That's not the funny part. Um, the funny part is that Benjamin had five times as much food as the brothers. And I have so many questions about this. I really do. I have so many questions. Did Benjamin have to eat all of that food? What if he doesn't like Egyptian food? And he has to eat five times as much as everyone else. What were the servants thinking as they are loading up one guy's plate and giving everyone else less? What were the brothers thinking? 
did they think it was normal for accused spies to eat dinner with the second most powerful man? And what did they think about Benjamin having so much more food than them? Now, what's kind of funny is that as the story tells it there at the end, it says all this happened, so they tasted and drank freely with him. I have to imagine, just go with me here, that the brothers at this point in the story and with all that would happen were kind of like, okay, and just ate and drank and took it as it was coming at them. But what is clear to us who are standing outside of the story? What is clear is that Benjamin is the most important person to Joseph. The term that is used in the Revised Standard Version, which they uh, uh, translated as yearned, is used in a parallel way only one other time in the Bible, and it's from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 8, referring to God's passion for Israel. I'm sorry, it's used one other time in Lamentations 5.10. But the phrases of Genesis chapter 43-30 and Hosea 11-8 are close parallels, and they tell us a little something about one another. In the Hosea passage, he's looking at his people, and he is recognized, God is recognizing that his people have gone away from, from him, and they are not his anymore, and he's struggling with what to do. But he looks at them, and the Hosea passage says that all of his compassion rises up within him. And he looks at them, and he says, how can I be rid of you? How can I be moved from you? All of my compassion and love is stirred up within me. Even though they had moved away from God, he could not give them up. And that deep yearning and profound emotional response are parallel to what Joseph was feeling about his brother. This is not a curiosity. I want you to consider this for a moment. Joseph is an emotionally and mentally damaged person, and he cannot help but be. And Benjamin represents something to him. Benjamin is the family he never had. Benjamin is all that he lost. And when he sees Benjamin, hasn't even spoken to him yet, he completely breaks down. So much so that he has to leave the room so that other people will not see him in his situation. We also need to know that Joseph did not insist Jacob come back. He did not set up a pretense to get his father back. He did for Benjamin. Let's pick it up now in chapter 44, verses 1 through 13. <laughs> now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of the sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? 
isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them, but they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. I kind of feel like the brothers should stop making grand declarations. Like they need to back that truck up a little bit. Very well then, the steward said. Let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave, and the rest of you will be freed from blame. He does not repeat what they just said. He sets his own terms. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened. Then the, <laughs> then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. I have to imagine that when they found the cup in, in Benjamin's sack, Reuben or Judah says, Come on! Really? What is happening here? This cannot be. And furthermore, what is up with the steward? He, he has to be thinking in his own way, you want me to plant stuff on them? again and remember he's the one that comforted them when they came back you want me to do this again and furthermore everything in this entire scenario was played to put the brothers in the most stressful situation possible think about it joseph let them sleep and leave the city and get just outside of the city to at which point they're thinking Okay, glad that's over. And then the steward, who was put in a weird situation, right? Like, how much does he know about what's going on? And he planted the cup in Benjamin's bag, along with the silver and all of theirs, and he is sent out to discover the cup again. Maybe he studied drama at school or something, I don't know. So he goes along with all this, and he played his part really well. So well, in fact, that when he gets there and stops them and lays all this out before them, he says, fine, let's look in the bags and see who has the cup. And who does he start with? Reuben, the oldest. Does he know where the cup is? Yes, which means he makes each brother open their bag individually looking for the cup. And each time it's like, <sighs> Benjamin, what is the matter with you? What is going on here? What is happening? What are we supposed to do? And in response to seeing that Benjamin had the cup, they now knew, well, the steward had said they didn't all have to die, that he didn't have to die and they would all be slaves. He, they now knew that Benjamin was going to have to what? Stay. And they tear their clothes. Right there in front of everybody. A sign of outward mourning and tragedy within their lives. Because they now know 
that they have to go home without Benjamin, which is the one thing they promised they wouldn't do. Never mind how all of this happened. Never mind the confusion of all of it. They have this road in front of them. So let's look again in verses 14 through 17. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? So basically, Joseph is saying, I had insight into what was going on. That's why I sent my steward out. But he is not saying that it comes from God. He's saying it's coming through talking to what? To spirits. That spirits have told him that this is where the cup is, which, frankly, would be consistent with Egyptian culture and religion at the time. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. So again, they bow before Joseph. And interestingly enough, who do they credit with all of this happening? God has exposed our guilt. What guilt? What have they done wrong so far? Well, it's been 14 years-ish, 15 years, or however long it was but until all this happened, right? From the time that they sold Joseph till the time of now. And they are still looking back at that and say, God has exposed our guilt. They hadn't done anything wrong within this particular scenario, it was all going back to them. And it's, it's interesting that they have done nothing wrong, that they have been doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they have no clue how their silver or the cup got back in their bags. And they are utterly powerless to do anything, and so all that they can do is take responsibility for it and conclude that we are being punished because of what has happened. So Judah recapped the entire scenario for Joseph. Well, look, we went home, we talked to our father, our father said this, we came back, we didn't take the gold, this is a but, or the silver, all these different things. So he concludes his speech here in verses uh, 30 through 34. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with a boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. All they can do is bargain, and they truly believe that if Benjamin were to stay in Egypt, Jacob would die. Are they right? Probably. Most likely. 
Now, why does all of this happen? We can throw some answers, maybe, that, you know, we've, we've talked about over the years or how we understand it. We still know what's going to happen in the story, which, again, cuts us short from living in this moment. But this moment is so dramatic, messy, circuitous, and confused, and it's all being driven by Joseph over and over and over again. He is emotionally and mentally torturing his brothers and his father. Jacob is not clear of the fallout here. So I want to just point out something simple. We have seen how biblical narrative flows when that narrative is in God's hands. We have seen just in the life of Joseph that things don't happen like they should. That sometimes the path goes in directions we don't want it to go in. That, that things happen that sometimes we say shouldn't happen if God were with us. And we have also seen through the story of Joseph that the path that God puts us on is sometimes unexpected and difficult to explain. Why did God do this and this to get him here? And I think we overlook how much all of this, the damage that all of this has done to Joseph himself. But when God is to control the narrative, there was always the knowledge that the story is going to go where God wants it to go. That no matter what happens, and we tell ourselves this often, yeah? That no matter what happens, our future is in God's hands. And there is hope and comfort in knowing that when God is writing the story and controlling the narrative. Well, how does the narrative change when we put it in our own hands? It starts to smell like us. Right? And the baggage we've been carrying or the things we think about people or our frustration or anger with the world or whatever all starts to bubble up to the surface and become a part of the story that formerly God was writing. Every biblical hero about whom we read has a moment or several moments where they take control of the story and they write their own chapter. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets. The only person, there is one person in the Bible who does not do this and does not face this kind of end. And that man's name is Enoch. His life is detailed in Genesis chapter 5 in like four verses. He walked faithfully with God for 300 years. He was the father of Methuselah and never died because he was taken away from God. That is the only righteous biblical character that doesn't rewrite part of their story. The only one. Of course, Jesus is the exception, right? The result is always the same. When someone takes over, something falls apart, right? When they wrestle control the story away from God, things fail. They get off course. They act in their own interests. People are hurt, and it's difficult to look at the story of Joseph and not see a hurt person who is hurting other people, especially those who hurt him. They get off course. They act in their own interests. People are hurt, and sometimes they 
fall spectacularly. Other times, they are course-corrected on the fly. And this reminds me of something important that we cannot overlook, even in this story of Joseph, and that is this. God's heroes are always unmistakably human. They have problems. They are real people who are dealing with things that we are dealing with. They are carrying around hurts that some of us carry around. They are unable to forgive, just like some of us are unable to forgive those who did certain things to us. But there's good news about this. It reminds me of the times that God has taken me from the unconventional path to where he wants me to go. And I'm reminded of the times that I tried to correct my own course. And to be completely straight with you, I made decisions to correct my course thinking that I was making the decisions that God wanted me to make. Not always, but often. And in making the decisions that God wanted me to make, I sometimes found that that was not actually where I was going. And sometimes God has gently corrected me. And sometimes God has pushed me and shoved me to the place that he wants me to be. And this is not an isolated incident in my life. I kind of think it's probably not an isolated incident in yours. I can confidently say that every church I've worked for, my getting to that church happened in this way of me making other choices or thinking other things and God correcting me in one way or another. And there are times where I have wondered out loud, couldn't you have taught me this a different way? I have a mailbox. Why is this this way? And I think of the times that I have been overcome with emotions. I think of the poor decisions I have made. I think of what I thought should be and how what God had for me was better than that. I think of the times that I mourned what I thought should be. And I can only conclude one thing, that all of us at one time or another get in the way of what God wants for us. How is this good news? Well, it's good news because God doesn't just let us run off on our own. You see? That even though Joseph's story has become so entangled with emotions and family history and hurt, God is still present and waiting for this emotion and these things to come to some sort of resolution so that his story will pick up once more. And maybe, I don't know, maybe Joseph needed to be broken down. Maybe the brothers needed to go through this stress. I'm not going to pretend that I know what God's purposes are in those things, though. 
but we see it as a long, weird road, yeah? With twists and turns. But just because we might take the pen from God in one chapter, he is still faithful and good to us. Amen? And he looks back at the things that we've written, and he doesn't erase them. He doesn't take them away or just cut that chapter out of the book. Instead, he builds right where we are and moves us to the next place he wants us to go. You know why? Because God is really accustomed to working with humans. And the things that have happened in your life, they're not the first time that God has had to work through that thing with someone else. All of the great people we look up into the Bible, we look up to in the Bible, have had their issues and problems and have rewritten their own chapter. And God has faithfully, every time, moved them if they were willing to listen and trust in him. Every time. God has not failed church. God has not failed in putting the people he loves back where they need to be. And there are a lot of things we can celebrate about God this morning, but for me, that's one of the biggest. Amen? Praise God. Praise God that he knows us and loves us. Knows us and loves us. Praise God that he doesn't erase the things that have happened to us, but instead builds on them where we are. And praise God that he is never done writing with us, for us. And we know that as long as we are in relationship with him, we may fail, but he will not. Amen?